Good evening. It's good to see everybody this evening. Had a beautiful day today, a wonderful time. Uh, yesterday we had a good afternoon uh, being together uh, as a congregation, uh, worshiping in the morning together, then spending time together socially even yesterday afternoon. Uh, Matt and Angela's house certainly enjoyed their hospitality, time to get together. And also uh, today got to spend some time with Stephen and Sharon and uh, we just had a good time doing that this afternoon as well. Played some games this afternoon, especially had a good time because I won. So that's uh, that's always a good thing. But we had a, a wonderful time being together. So enjoyed even the, the infancy of this week. It's been been good to be together. It's good to come together tonight, focus on God's Word. And that's what I hope to do uh, in the next few minutes that we have with one another. You know, in our country, it was once commonly agreed that the family was the foundation of society and that marriage was the foundation of the family, and that marriage is the covenant union between a man and a woman. However, those foundations are very quickly crumbling in our society. Casual sexual activity seems to be the nation's pastime. People are choosing whatever gender they want to be, if any gender at all, and what public restroom they want to use. Same-sex marriages are now the law of the land according to, uh, at least it has been for the last two years, and those who dissent against that have been subject to legal prosecution. A recent Pew survey revealed that fewer than half of the children in this country live in a home with two heterosexual parents who are in their first marriage. That's a sad statistic. In fact, 40% of first marriages in this country end in divorce. And 6.1% of all households in America are made up of couples living together without the benefit of marriage. It can be argued that the reason our society has seen an increase in violence against the family is because of the underlying presuppositions about God and His Word. They have changed in our society. And we shouldn't be surprised that as our society has drifted further and further away from God, Uh, that it is also drifted further and further away from God's design of marriage. And that's why it's important that Christians be reminded of God's design for marriage. Because our society is telling us that marriage is something else, that it's something different. We need to look to God's Word to find out what marriage is. And so this evening, as well as tomorrow evening, what I'd like to talk about is the subject of marriage. And I want us to start out this evening talking about the very definition of marriage. What are we talking about when we talk about marriage? Uh, What is marriage and how does the Bible define marriage? I think a lot of people have an idea in their minds of what marriage ought to be. You go out into the streets of of any city and ask them, what do you think about marriage? What do you think marriage is? How do you think it should be defined? Who should get married and who should not? And you'll get all kinds of different answers, but none of those things really matter about public opinion. Instead, what matters is what God says about the subject. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this evening. Tomorrow night, we'll look at more applications of that and how we ought to act within the marriage uh, for those who are married. The scriptures contain uh, numerous truths about marriage. In fact, one only has to scan the opening pages of the Bible to discover that marriage is, first and foremost, utterly and undeniably God's idea. 
You know, you look at Genesis chapter 1, and it gives us an overview of creation. There are six days of creation, the seventh day that God rested. And it informs us that God created man in his own image on that sixth day. And in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And he blessed the newlyweds, and he gave them a mandate to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. Well, Genesis chapter 2 kind of rewinds the tape and it zooms in and it provides some additional details in slow motion, as it were. It shows that the Lord God created the male first from the dust of the ground. And then he created the female second from the rib that he extracted from the male. It also lets us in on the fact that God created woman to be man's perfect counterpart. And this wedding was immediate. The man was still standing there, gawk-eyed, spouting out poetry, my bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, when God pronounced them as husband and wife. And no doubt you're familiar with the narrative of the opening pages of the Bible. I think most of us here recognize Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and we understand what happens there. But at the risk of stating the obvious, let me make a few observations here at the beginning. First of all, it was God who created mankind. Second of all, it was God who created male and female. He is the one who is behind putting man and woman together. And thirdly, it was God then who created marriage and the sexual union. He was the first father, metaphorically speaking, to walk a bride down the aisle. He was its first officiant. Marriage followed his creation of man and woman like a clap of thunder follows lightning. It was all part of his plan. And the point that I'm trying to make is that marriage is not a human invention. God created man, marriage, and it existed from the very get-go, right from the beginning of time. It was God's divine purpose that human couples unite in an exclusive, indivisible, one-flesh, lifelong covenant relationship. And Jesus reiterated that in Matthew chapter 19. We're going to look at Matthew 19 quite a bit this evening. But Matthew 19 and verse 3, the Pharisees came to Jesus in order to test him, asking him, is it lawful to divorce for any reason at all? We're not really going to look at uh, that subject very much this evening. We'll do it in passing. But I want you to notice uh, Jesus' answer to that question because it's very insightful about what God designed for marriage. He answered by saying, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, he quotes from Genesis chapter 1, and said, and he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. I mean, look at Jesus' words here. They indicate that God is ultimately the one who joins the husband and wife together, and makes the two into one. I want you to think for a moment about the staggering implications of that. Not only was God the first officiant of the first marriage, but marriage is so utterly and completely God's doing that he is the one who actually stands behind every marriage covenant from all times, even today. Marriage is sacred, it is holy, and it is divine in origin. You see, marriage is set in motion, and it is defined by God. Its essence is such that it cannot and it does not exist outside of God, without God. The institution of marriage is so God-created, so God-ordained, so God-sanctioned, and God-breathed that He stands as the judicial 
uh, contract maker and witness at every wedding. Now, please don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean that God approves of everyone that we decide to marry, nor does it mean that he approves of every marriage. That is very clear that that is not the case. There are some people who ought not to be married. There are some people who ought not to be married because it results in adultery. But it does mean that whenever a man marries a woman, God is the end cause of the joining that takes place. And the reason is, is because he's the one who created marriage in the first place. The only reason that two people would ever think to join in marriage is because God created it in the first place. And having said that, man has taken then what God created in the first place and has perverted it, much like man has done with so many things. And in so doing, they have redefined marriage. However, marriage is defined only by God. I want you to look at, though, what people have tried to do in defining marriage. There are many different ways that that is the case. I want us to go back to 1913, where Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defined marriage as this. I find it interesting. The act of marrying, or the state of being married, legal union of a man and a woman for life as a husband and a wife. And I find this especially interesting in 1913, that they even quote from the Bible and refer to the Bible in their dictionary, that marriage is honorable in all, uh, the reference being Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. But you fast forward almost 80 years later, and Webster's Dictionary in 1992, this is while I was still in high school, said the institution under which a man and a woman became legally united on a permanent basis. A little less wordy, but still you get the same idea. Four years later, uh, we, we see that a conservative Congress passed the Defense of Marriage Act, or Act, yeah, that's the Marriage Act, which stated the word marriage, particularly in governmental use, means only a legal union between one man and one woman as a husband and wife. And the word spouse refers only to a person of the opposite sex who is a husband or a wife. That's an act of Congress in 1996. By the way, that was passed by the sitting president, which was Bill Clinton, surprisingly. But here we have, you know, I agree with the definition that Congress puts forth there. However, by 2009, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary who we looked at the uh, definition of their dictionary almost 100 years before this, have changed a little bit. They said that marriage is the state of being united to a person of the opposite sex as a wife in a consensual and contractual relationship recognized by law. But second of all, they said the state of being united to a person of the same sex in a relationship like that of traditional marriage. So in 100 years, they changed their definition they're no longer quoting from Scripture, but they're saying you can also have a homosexual marriage as well. Today, if you look at MerriamWebster.com, the definition they give for marriage is the state of being united as spouses in a consensual and contractual relationship recognized by law. And Dictionary.com, just to give you one more definition today, uh, it says any of the diverse forms of interpersonal union established in various parts of the world to form a familial bond that is recognized legally, religiously, or socially, granting the participating partners mutual conjugal rights and responsibilities, and including, for example, opposite-sex marriage, same-sex marriage, plural marriage, and arranged marriage. Pretty wordy definition, but according to this rather awkward definition, two people whether they are the opposite sex, same sex, transgender, or whatever gender they consider themselves to be, they are married if 
they're sexually involved and committed to sharing a common residence, if society as a whole doesn't object to their relationship, as it currently would in the case of incest and pedophilia, however, that may not be much longer, and if it is recognized legally under the government which they reside. I want to tell you what a shallow view of marriage that really is and how degrading it is to the relationship that Alina and I have. But more importantly, how degrading that is to what God created. Instead, the Bible presents a vision infinitely more noble, more beautiful, more heart-stirring in the pages of the Scriptures. God's Word flies in the face of the idea that marriage is merely a social custom or an evolving human institution that we can define or that we can redefine at will. Again, marriage is God's notion, and it's not ours. He purposed it from the beginning. And therefore, in order to rightly understand marriage, we dare not leave God out of it, especially for those of us who are striving to restore New Testament Christianity. God has got to be our starting point. If marriage is God's idea, and it is His creation, and if He creates and He ratifies the marriage bond, then it stands to reason that he's the one who gets to dictate terms. I looked on a, on a website just last week, I believe it was a Presbyterian website, and on that website it says that, that society gets to define what marriage is. Even if God created it, we define what it is, and the government gets to regulate it. But that's not what the scripture says. God, not man, gets to define what marriage is because he created it. And it doesn't matter how any dictionary or how any act of Congress or Supreme Court ruling defines marriage. Even if we like the definition that they give, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we like. It matters what God says about it. So what I'd like to do with most of the time that we have this evening is summarize how God defines marriage. In other words, what is marriage? What does the Bible say that marriage is? And there is no one passage that we can turn to. There is nothing there where he says, here's the definition of marriage. But I will suggest that as we look at what the Bible says about marriage, we can put together a biblical definition of what marriage is. I'm going to give you seven points that the Bible speaks of in speaking about marriage, what marriage is. And first of all, we see that, and I want us to put these all together to, to form a biblical definition. First of all, we see that marriage is a spiritual and a legal covenant. You know, in Malachi chapter 2, he is talking to those uh, post-captivity Jews who had violated their marriages. They were treating it treacherously, he says. And in verse 14, he says, Yet you say, but for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, the person you're supposed to be married to from the beginning, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Malachi makes it very clear here, actually the Lord makes it very clear here in the book of Malachi, that marriage is a covenant relationship that you enter into for life. Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 17, as he talks about the strange woman there, she is one who leaves the companion of her youth and she forgets about her covenant of her God. So it is a covenant relationship that she forgets. Marriage certainly isn't the only type of covenant that we see within the scriptures, but it certainly is a significant one. So what is a covenant? We sometimes use that terminology. It's a religious terminology that we use when we come together in Bible study and as we're studying God's Word. 
But what is, what is it? Sometimes we use terms that we don't necessarily know what they mean. In the Bible, a covenant is a legal binding interpersonal agreement or a commitment that outlines the obligations of each party in a relationship. Oftentimes it outlines the blessings that accompany the fulfillment of that co uh, uh, commitment and that co uh, covenant, but it also warns of negative consequences, the curses, if you will, that come upon those who fail to meet them. We read about the Abrahamic co uh, covenant between God and Abraham, also the Mosaic covenant, and of course we are under the new covenant today. And in all those covenants, there is something that is laid out where each one has their own obligations that are spelled forth. Those who keep them are blessed. Those who go against them, of course, are, are cursed. But in our modern minds, when we think of a covenant, what comes to our mind is a contract. But I want you to understand that's not it at all. A covenant differs from, differs from a contract in that a covenant formalizes the terms of a relationship rather than quantifying the interchanging of services or goods. You know, people who enter into a covenant form an unbreakable alliance or association or a bond. But people in a contract feel that they're duty-bound only if the partner in the contract is living up to their part of the agreement. And so many in our day and age, they view marriage as a contract. In fact, going back to the definition that Merriam-Webster gives from 2009 and onward, it says that it is the state of being united to a person of the opposite sex as a wife in a consensual and a contractual relationship recognized by law. You see that? They view today marriage as a contract. And therefore, when they feel like they're getting the short end of the deal, what do they do? They're out of there. You broke your end of the contract. You're not making me happy anymore. You're not doing what I want you to do. And so I'm out of here. If you're not being the husband you need to be, if you're not being the wife that you need to be, why should I be the spouse that I need to be to you? And so they're out of there. And yet God requires an unbreakable and an unchangeable bond between marriage partners. In other words, they're committed for life. And furthermore, unlike a contract which only requires human witnesses, a covenant is a permanent oath that is witnessed by God. You see, when we enter into a marriage, according to God's definition of marriage, it being a covenant, not only are we making a promise to one another, but we're making a promise to God as well. It is horizontal and it is vertical. It's not only legal made in front of witnesses of the state, but it's also a spiritual bond that is witnessed by God. And that's why it's so important to understand that marriage is a covenant. You see, according to the Bible, living together in a committed sexual relationship does not constitute marriage. Marriage is not just about sex. It certainly is a benefit of marriage, but it doesn't define the marriage, unlike what people think today. Two elderly people in their 90s can get married and they can enter into a covenant relationship of marriage without ever being sexually intimate. We have to understand that. Nor does a financial partnership constitute a marriage. Just because you come together and you say, hey, we would be better off financially. We could file our taxes and, and do it jointly and save some money. That doesn't constitute a marriage covenant. Nor does sharing the same residence constitute a marriage. The government defines a common law marriage as two people who have shared the same resources, such as finances, and a residence for a certain length of time, that they just consider them married. Thus, it's common law. But the Bible teaches us that a marriage requires a formal, formal covenant that is ratified in the presence of God. 
It includes public vows, a pledge to fulfill one's marital obligations, and a legal restriction with the governing authorities. But most importantly, it is a covenant, an agreement between spouses, and most importantly, between God. So first of all, marriage is defined as a covenant relationship. But second of all, marriage is a relationship of love. And although I may be stating the obvious here, I believe it's important to emphasize that the marriage relationship is primarily one of love. In, in Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 25, and we'll look at this in more detail tomorrow night, Lord willing, he says to us, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the pattern of marriage for a husband towards his wife is to love her. And of course, the Greek word there is agape. It is that self-sacrificing love, looking for the best interest of your wife. We're also told in Titus chapter 2 and verse 4 that the older women are to encourage the younger women to love their husbands. It's a different Greek word there. It means husband, to be husband lovers, which based upon the word phileo rather than agape, but still the idea is there of a type of love. Marital vows are a commitment by the couple to love and faithfully nurture and invest in and work at and enjoy their exclusive love relationship until death parts them. You know, sometimes I've talked to married couples who just say, you know what, we, over time we just fell out of love. We just, we just don't love each other anymore. We just don't have that spark there anymore. But first of all, that is a misconception of the biblical idea of love. Love has nothing to do with sparks or infatuation or anything like that. And we're going to talk again more about that, Lord willing, tomorrow night. But second of all, I would ask this question. If you've fallen out of love, then when are you going to repent? Because the Bible says that it is based upon love, not self-seeking, not what I can get out of this, but what I can give to the other person. Because by God's definition, marriage is a relationship of love. But thirdly, we also see that marriage is between two individuals. Again, let's go to Matthew chapter 19 and look at what Jesus says as he answered the, the Pharisees. He said, have you not read that he created them from the beginning, made them notice male and female. There's two people there. And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, they are no longer two, but one flesh, and what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They're no longer two, but they are one flesh. But notice it starts out with two people. From the very beginning, it was God's plan that marriage consists of only two people. We're talking about monogamy here rather than polygamy. You remember Merriam-Webster's dictionary said that it was open to polygamy. And I want to suggest to you that's really the next step of where this is going in our country, that it's going to be widely accepted that if you can, you can determine what, what marriage is, why not have as many spouses as you would like, both men and women. And throughout biblical history, I want you to understand that it is the norm that monogamy, being married to only one person, is what was the standard throughout the Bible. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute, there's a lot of people who have multiple wives in the Old Testament. And that certainly is the case. But what I want you to understand is those were the exceptions rather than the rules. You know, it certainly wasn't according to God's plan. The first polygamist is found in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 19. A man by the name of Lamech had two wives. But his marrying of two wives in that chapter is certainly put in a negative light. In fact, it says this is what the sons of Cain did. These are what the sons of men did rather than the sons of God, who was the children, the descendants of Seth. 
However, we have to admit that there are some people within the Bible that God considers righteous who have multiple wives. Think about Abraham and Jacob and Gideon and King David. Those are all men, by the way, who are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as the great men of faith who married multiple people. But if God's plan is monogamy, why then did God tolerate it with these men? Well, it's important to note that although the Bible reports that certain men had multiple wives, it doesn't condone the practice. You know, these passages about these men are descriptive rather than prescriptive. And that's an important distinction. Nowhere in the Bible is polygamy ever sanctioned. And Jesus clarified for us that God's design for marriage is one man for one woman as it was in the beginning. That's what Jesus appeals to. From the beginning, it was not so. You remember when the Pharisees pressed him about the the practice of divorce in the Old Testament, about Moses giving a certificate of divorce. Remember how Jesus answered that in verse 8 of Matthew 19. He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But notice, from the beginning, it has not been this way. In other words, regarding divorce, he says, Moses gave you some guidelines because of your sinful hearts. But I am overruling that concession and calling you to a higher standard because divorce was not a part of God's plan. He didn't plan it this way. Marriage was not supposed to be this way, dissolving marriages, from the very beginning. And we need to go back to God's original purpose. Well, I want you to understand that the Pharisees would have come to him and asked him about polygamy. He probably would have said the same things here. There were things in God's law under the old law that he tolerated, but he certainly did not want them to have. And thus today in the New Testament, there's nothing about polygamy. In fact, it only indicates monogamy. You remember elders, the qualification of elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, that they are to be husbands of one wife, one woman. And that is not something that is abnormal. Uh, that is what the normal is supposed to be. They are to be examples to the flock, and thus all of us are to be that way as well. For Jesus and Paul and for the early church, marriage and sexual ethics are not based upon cultural practices or sins that are reported on in the Old Testament. But instead, the pattern of marriage is based upon the pre-fall monogamous union of a man and woman that God instituted at creation. So we have to understand that marriage defined by God is a marriage that is in between two individuals and two individuals only. But fourthly, we also see that marriage is defined as being between one biological male and one biological female. I hate that I even have to put that word biological in there, but you have to do that today. Going back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, it said that God created man in his own image. Notice, in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. That's the only two options. It's male and female. And so when we get over to chapter 2, he says in verse 24, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he goes on to say, And the man and his wife were both naked, and we're not ashamed. Notice it is the man and his wife that were there. The book of Genesis is, is clear that God created two and only two genders, male and female. And these two are joined biologically and complementary in marriage. He didn't create any other gender nor any other type of marital union. In God's plan, 
the male-female marriage is the only kind of marriage that there is. God created the man and woman as complementary counterparts to one another. When God created the woman, he stated that his intent in verse 18 of chapter 2 was to create a helper that is suitable for him. Remember he said that it's not good for man to be alone. Man was there with all these other animals that were different from him. He says it's not good that he is alone. And the New American Standard has a note in the Bible that says that he needed a helper corresponding to him. Is how one way it could be translated. In other words, man needed a counterpart to man. They were matching. They were both human beings. They weren't elephants or giraffes or anything else that was in the garden or on this earth. They were matching, but they weren't the same. Literally, the word there means like opposites. And so in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 23, it's interesting that he says there again, this is now bone of my bone. This is, this is Adam as he wakes up from that deep sleep and he sees Eve for the first time. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, which in the Hebrew literally means, wow. No, that's not it really. But he, he says, look, this is wonderful. This bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she's going to be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Now notice, he says that she was taken out of man. The word man there in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word ish. And it is derived from a word that means strength. She was taken from one who is strong. The word for woman in the same verse, she shall be called woman, is from the Hebrew word isha. Which actually is interestingly derived from the Hebrew word that means soft. And so here is man who is strong and woman who is soft. God's creation of man differed from his creation of woman, as did the final creatures that he made. Today, I want you to understand there are not enough strong men and soft women. We are trying to dis uh, disturb the distinctions there. Our society and our culture is trying to blur those differences. They are making soft men. And they are making strong women. There's nothing wrong with somebody, a woman being strong spiritually and certainly strong in, in, in her convictions and personality. And yet we cannot dis make those distinctions uh, blurred between a man and a woman, which our society is certainly trying to do. The New Testament is clear that your biological gender, the sex that God gave you even before you were born, is an accompanied with the expectation that you will embrace and not reject his sex-specific design. The biological makeup that you were born with tells you what God expects of you personally. And we have no right to change what God expects of us. Just because you might alter yourself, you say to yourself, I feel like a woman even though I'm a man. Or I feel like a man even though God created me as as a female, just because we might alter ourselves, even physically, does not mean that God has changed what He expects of you and how He created you. If you are a male, then your role, your responsibility, is different from that of a woman. If you're a female, your role and responsibility is different from that of a man. And I don't care how you feel, because feelings has nothing to do with it. Mature manhood requires that a man step up and accept his responsibility to offer his masculine strength through appropriate and loving guidance and provision and protection. 
And mature womanhood requires that a woman embrace her responsibility to cultivate a nurturing, life-giving, agreeable spirit and respond appropriately to her husband. These sex-specific responsibilities are particularly important in marriage, as we're going to see, Lord willing, tomorrow night. You know, male and females are not clones of one another who just have different body parts. Although the similarities are vast, God created male and female to be different even to the core of our beings, not just physically on the outside, but even internally. We, we complement one another. By the way, that's compliment with an E, not compliment with an I. Complimenting with an I is a good thing to do also when you're married. But we're talking about completing one another. A complement is either of two corresponding parts that completes the whole. You know, like, like two puzzle pieces. It's, it's a part that has a corresponding part that, that fits and it matches together perfectly. A man and a man, they just don't go together. And a woman and a woman just do not go together. You know, without having a biological lesson, because my mother's in the audience tonight, you know, when, I, when, when I'm working outside on my house and there's, there's power tools, many times I'll have a saw and I'll have a drill and I'll have something else, but I only have one cord. And so I'll use the saw for a little while, but I need to turn and I need to use the drill. So I have to unplug the saw and plug the drill in. Well, you know what happens many times is what I'm not even thinking about is I'll unplug the saw and I'll go to plug in the drill and I I can't because they're two parts that do not go together. It's just the way that God has made us. And I think you get the idea of what I'm trying to say here. It is very obvious, even from the biological and physiological aspects of us, that we just aren't meant to go together. But a man and a woman, an extension cord and a power drill, go together just right. That's the way it is. But it's not just physically that I'm talking about here. We are compatible in counterparts even so much deeper than that. When male and female are united in marriage, it's just not the physical parts that correspond and fit together in a complementary way. It's also their roles and their responsibilities. Well, also we need to understand that God defines marriage as a joining of two into one flesh. You know, those complementary differences between a man and a woman enable that union. In marriage, God joins two individuals in a symbiotic way. Again, let's go to Matthew 19, again, verse 5. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they're one flesh. Again, I want you to notice that it is God who ultimately, in a divine act, who, who does the joining here. In his eyes, the net result is a whole new entity. One being, one body, one flesh. So the question is, what does it mean to become one flesh? There's a lot of different ideas out there about that. I think the first thing that comes to our mind when we think about being one flesh generally speaking, is the sexual union. And although it certainly does involve the sexual union, becoming one flesh, as I understand it in the Scriptures, is not just sexual. Once again, an older couple who is married and are incapable of having sexual intimacy can still be one flesh as they marry. And the Bible indicates that, that marriage is an intimate union that involves every aspect of a person's being. Uh, spiritually, emotionally, physically, financially. It is sharing together in those things, in, in our thoughts, our hopes, our dreams, our, our heart, everything. It's a draw-jopping, mind-blowing concept that God creates a union that is so deep and so complete 
that the individual parts are supernaturally eclipsed by the greater whole. And so in the spiritual realm, the way he says it here is that the two actually become one. God also defines marriage as it being a lifelong relationship. Again, once again, verse 6 of Matthew 19. So these two who are married are no longer two, but they're one flesh. And here's the key. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. It's not within man's power to destroy that uniting that God performs in marriage. You know, Jesus taught that the marriage bond is so permanent that even if the government says you can divorce, that marriage bond cannot be broken. You saw two people who have been married in the, in the, in the, in the witnesses of, of people and of God. They are married. They are bound for life. Even if they go to the courthouse and they get a legal divorce, God says they are still bound together. And so in Matthew 19 and verse 9, he concludes this. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, I prefer the word fornication there, the sexual, any sexual activity outside of marriage, and marries another woman, commits adultery. In fact, Christ's view on the permanence of marriage was so stringent that later on, the disciples are questioning him about it, and they claim, you know what, if this is the way that it's going to be, it's better not to get married. I'm going to forego marriage because of that high standard that you've put there, Jesus. I don't know. Everybody's divorced, and I'm not sure I can do this for long. But Jesus held firm on this, and in verse 11, he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only to those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from the mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. There are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept it, let him accept this. There are some people who are born without the ability to procreate. There are some people who are made unable to reproduce by other people. But then there are some people who just simply choose to be celibate for the kingdom of God's sake. And he says, if that's what you need to do, then so be it. Because it's more important that you understand the marriage bond and that it is lifelong than for you to violate that in an act of weakness. And so according to Romans chapter 7 and verse 2, given an example, an illustration about the, about the old law, he said, for the married woman is, is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. And you could interchange husband and wife and, and male and female in those. What he says about the woman is also true of the man. But according to this verse, marriage forms an indivisible bond that lasts until the death of one spouse. And when a spouse dies, the marriage is over and the surviving spouse is free to remarry. Otherwise, marriage is designed to be until death do us part. But the final part of this definition, biblical definition of marriage, is that marriage is the only relationship in which sexual intimacy is legitimately pursued and enjoyed. You know, in many cases, you might say that the sexual act ratifies the deal. And many times we refer to this as consummating the marriage, or another word would be completing the marriage. As I already pointed out, on rare occasions the sexual union is not necessary for the marriage to exist uh, because of, for example, someone who is not able to have a sexual relationship, whether it be because of age or some other reason. But where it can exist between two people, the scriptures are very clear that it must. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 2, it says, Because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, 
and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I don't know, but it seems like in Corinth there were some who were thinking it's better to be celibate than, than even if you're married. And Paul comes around and corrects that and says, no, that's not the case. Instead, don't deprive one another of sexual things within the marriage relationship. But the married sexual union, even though it is an obligation, ought not to be seen as an obligation, as much as it is a beautiful and holy gift from God. It might be compared to your contribution on Sunday morning. You know, are we required to give back to the Lord as we prosper? We certainly are. But we shouldn't view it as an obligation. We ought to view it as something that we want to do to give to the Lord. And also, in the marriage relationship, sexual relationship ought to be the same way. Yes, it is an obligation. But we ought not to view it as a duty, but as the beautiful thing that God has given us. You know, as I mentioned before, being one flesh... I don't believe, is just sexual. But the sexual union physically demonstrates the spiritual one flesh union between married people. You see, and follow me on this, please, that when two married people are sexually intimate, what it does is it illustrates in the physical realm that an emotional, spiritual, legal one flesh union has indeed taken place. You see, in a sexual act, a husband and wife affirm in the private realm what has taken place in the public realm and in the heavenly realm. Each and every time that they make love, they are telling and they are retelling the story that they are one flesh. The sexual union is the testimony. Sexual intimacy bears witness that God has made the two into one. And that's why God restricts sex to marriage and why sex outside of marriage is so offensive to him. I want you to think about that for a moment. If unmarried individuals are physically intimate, what they are doing is telling a lie with their bodies. Anytime two people are not married and they're having sex with one another, they're lying. They are testifying that a divine joining has taken place when in fact it is not because that's its purpose. And since the covenant of marriage was created to bear witness to God's covenant through Jesus, as an illustration, their behavior also tells a lie about God. And that's why God hates sexual sin so much. It's not just because of what it does to the people who are, is engage, who are engaging in it. That's bad enough. It breaks down mentally and emotionally and it scars them for life. But it is also because it tells lies to the world and about God. And that's why Satan is trying to so hard to get people to engage in sexual immorality. Marriage is an exclusive romantic and sexual relationship. Spouses forsake all other alliances and remain faithful to one another. And their relationship and their newly established family unit takes on the highest priority in their lives. And their ties with one another supersede all other family ties. That's why they must leave their father and mother and cleave to their wife, as it says in Genesis 2 and verse 24. Uh, as the King James Version says, leave and cleave. 
Certainly, he talks about the man leaving and cleaving, but the woman does that as well. But the emphasis indicates that the man is the one who becomes the head of the new family unit and that he bears a unique responsibility for its success. You know, the word that's translated join there, cleave in some translation, reflects the central concept of covenant faithfulness. The Hebrew word is debak here, and it suggests the idea of being permanently glued to one another, that he leaves his father and mother and he is glued to his wife, and the wife is glued to her new husband. And by the way, this word here is one of the words that's frequently used to express the covenant commitment to God. Uh, many times God refers to, you hold fast to God's covenant. And the same word is used here, you glued to God. And God wants that same commitment uh, to our spouses. And it's only through this committed sexual union that offspring, who are the product and the expression of our marriage union, is created by two people and by God. Three, de- three personalities come together and form a new being in the sexual union. You remember in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now the man, Adam, had relations with his wife Eve. And the word that's used there is know, that he had the, that's the English word, but he, that they came to know. It was a euphemism that you intimately came to know your spouse in the sexual relationship. But notice, she conceived as a result of that sexual union and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have a man-child, notice, with the help of the Lord that the man and the wife knew each other, they had that relationship, but God also entered into that act and gave them their child. And so understand that God is involved in this whole relationship. And so to sum up God's definition of marriage, I want you to understand that marriage is a spiritual and a legal covenant of love between a man and a woman. They are joined together by God into one flesh for life enjoying the exclusive sexual union as a demonstration of that covenant. I know that's a lengthy definition, but I think if we put all these things together, that's really the definition that we can come up with from the scriptures. Well, I've spent a lot of time this evening defining what marriage is, but I haven't really talked about why or to what extent or or what end or what cause marriage even exists. So that's what, just a few minutes here before we leave this evening, I just want to talk about why is it that marriage exists in the first place. Some people might say that it's for companionship. After all, God said it's not good for man to be alone. Others might say to provide a holy way of procreation, which is certainly true within the scriptures. Still, others might say, well, it's to keep someone from sexual sin, which 1 Corinthians 7 bears that out. And all these things are certainly true and biblical. But what I want you to understand is all those things I just mentioned are the benefits of marriage rather than the purpose for marriage. The Bible tells us what the purpose of marriage is in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31 and 32. He quotes again from Genesis 2, and, and Paul does this time, saying, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. I want you to notice again, here Paul quotes from the Genesis account about creation and marriage, and then he explains that the mystery uh, that has always been contained within marriage. Now, what's a mystery? It's not a Perry Mason movie or anything like that, but a mystery, according to the Bible, is something that was once concealed but now has been revealed. 
there were some things that God intended from the very beginning that He didn't reveal until later on. In the New Testament times, He reveals these things to us. And that's what He says about marriage. It was something that was concealed, but now to us as New Testament Christians, it's been revealed to us. And he indicates that husbands play a unique role in telling the bridegroom part of the story, and that wives play a unique role in telling that of the bride's part. In other words, God created this temporary, earthly, moral, love-based covenant of marriage to illustrate the indescribably magnificent, eternal, heavenly, immortal one. You see, earthly marriage is a foretaste of the coming marriage of the Lamb. And it was designed to illustrate and to draw people into that heavenly relationship. And that is why we cannot take marriage lightly, because it's supposed to teach us about God and our relationship with Him. You see, marriage is really designed for the purpose of teaching us about the relationship that we're supposed to have with God. Again, going back to our definition that we put up just a moment ago, marriage is a covenant because our relationship with God is supposed to be covenant-based. Marriage is a love relationship because God loves us. Marriage, marriage is between two complementary counterparts because Jesus and the church are complementary counterparts. In marriage, two become one because we become one with Christ and we become a part of His body as we are baptized into Christ. The marriage relationship cannot be broken, and that is because... God can, uh, God cannot, uh, rather God will never leave us and forsake us, and we ought not to forsake Him. In marriage, the covenant precedes the union because we cannot unite with Christ outside of the covenant relationship. And the point I'm trying to get at it this evening is that every part of marriage was created to point to some uh, spectacular relationship between God and His people. And that's why it's so important that we not allow anyone to redefine marriage today. And certainly we must not buy into a, a different definition of marriage. If we change human marriage, it will lead to a misunderstanding of what our relationship with God ought to be. So from the very beginning, marriage was a visible object lesson given by God to teach us about invisible spiritual realities. God created manhood and womanhood and marriage, and the sexual union, because he wanted us to have symbols, images, language, powerful enough to convey the idea of who he is and what a relationship with him is all about. And without them, we'd have a tougher time understanding concepts such as desire and love and commitment and fidelity and loyalty and unity and intimacy and oneness and covenant and fatherhood and family, and the list goes on and on. We'd have a hard time understanding God himself and his gospel. You know, in short, marriage was created to display the magnificence of God. It, it, it exists to exalt Jesus and to make a relationship with him irresistible. You see, those of you who are married this evening, when you look at your marriage, it ought to make you love Jesus even more. And let me stress that. When you look at your marriage, it ought to make you love Jesus even more. And if it doesn't, I dare say that your marriage isn't yet completely what God would have you to be. Sure, you may be married to one woman or one man. You may not be a polygamist. 
You may not be a homosexual. And you may not have had sexual relationships with anyone else besides your spouse. And you haven't divorced. Maybe you've been with your spouse for decades. You know, those are great starting points. But that doesn't mean that your marriage is what God wants you to be. That's why it's so important that we not think about marriage the way... uh, Let me restate that. That's why it's so important that we think about marriage in the way that God wants us to think about it and that we do marriage the way God wants us to do it. And that's also why Satan is working so hard to corrupt and to destroy our marriages and destroy the mean of manhood and womanhood and marriage and sex. And that's why we're going to talk about this not only tonight, but also tomorrow evening as well, to learn more about the marriages that God would have us to have. And so that we think about marriage the way that God would have us to, and not the way that, that, that society and maybe even our own selfish desires would want us to think of marriage. Scripture is emphatic that who we are as a male and female has very little to do with us. It has very much to do with God. What is manhood about? It's about displaying the glory of Jesus Christ. What is womanhood about? It's about displaying the glory of Jesus Christ. If you don't like being a man, you don't like being the leader God says you need to be, you don't like being a woman, you don't like your role as a, as a wife or a woman, it really doesn't matter because it's really not about you. It's about what God is trying to teach you and others through your God-given role. It's about displaying the glory of Jesus Christ. So what is marriage all about? It's about displaying the glory of Jesus Christ. What is sex all about? It's about displaying the glory of Jesus Christ. And by the way, what is being single all about? It's about displaying the glory of Jesus Christ. You see, married couples shine a light on the heavenly romance by faithfully loving their spouses and remaining true to their covenant vows. But singles also shine light on the heavenly romance by remaining uh, sexually pure and enraptured with Christ. So both of them remind us that marriage is temporary in the sense of it's only for this life, and it is secondary in importance only to that which is to come. This evening, the question is, Have you been married to Christ? Have you become one with Christ by coming a part of Him? That you have entered into that body that is considered the bride of Christ, and that one day you will be a part of the marriage supper of the Lamb as it's described in the book of Revelation. If you're not giving your life over to Him this very evening, why don't you do that? Submit to Him. Lovingly come to Him in simple trust and faith, saying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Confessing that. Believing it repenting of your sins, and then being baptized in order to come in contact with that blood of Jesus Christ and becoming one with Him. This evening, maybe you've been a child of God, but you've not been what you need to be. Maybe your marriage is not what it needs to be. I encourage you to repent of that. Make it right with God. If it's of a per- per- private nature, you make it right with God. If it's of a public nature, make it right with those in the church here so that we can be praying for you, so that we can forgive you as well. Whatever your need may be this evening, why don't you come forward now and stand up and see you.